Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. Patty, how are you this week? I am absolutely splendid, Gary. It's not even the weekend. Normally, we record this on the weekend, but I have some stuff going on over the weekend, or going on this weekend. Um, so we're recording it on a Friday, which is it's actually quite enjoyable, I think, personally, yeah. um, rather than having to get up early on a Saturday or a Sunday and recording this. Yeah, it's very nice. Normally, I'm not available on a Friday, which is on me. But this Friday, I'm just after finishing my surgery placement. Had my exam yesterday, all done. So I'm off today on a Friday. Would you believe it? How nice. Um, And by off, I mean we're here working, recording the podcast. And this week, we're going to be discussing the topic of disability. And to put this in context, we've been discussing this so this overall is part of what we're calling the medical exercise series so we're talking about different topics that sort of straddle the boundaries between personal training and healthcare so if you're a personal trainer um you're going to come across clients from all sorts of populations and some of those people will have specific diagnoses some people might have mild physical or intellectual disabilities and ultimately what we want to triage is that exercise is accessible and available to the maximum amount of people because we're pretty strong believers that exercise can benefit pretty much everyone if not everyone so we'd like more people to be exercising and when we talk about disability this is something like you, you something might come to mind for you when you say that word and there's been a lot of disability campaigning over the last couple of decades to try to get people to understand things like, for example, invisible disabilities and the idea that, you know, someone having a disability doesn't mean that they're inherently ostracized from society and they can't work or they can't go to college or these types of things, but rather that disability spans this very, very broad spectrum from the intellectual to the physical to the cognitive um, and specific uh, senses um, and, and basically anything that we might consider to um, hinder one's ability away from what we consider to be normal. So firstly, it's important to understand that when it comes to exercise, it's not just a question of considering exercise within the context of <clears throat> physical disability, because I think that's probably what people think about immediately. They think, how can we adapt exercise for people maybe in wheelchairs or people who've had amputations and that type of thing? And we will talk about that. We will, absolutely. But what I also want people to appreciate is that there are also significant barriers and benefits to exercise for people with intellectual disabilities, for example, or people with disabilities to a specific sense like hearing or blindness, for example. And there are clearly going to be limitations for people like that to exercise. And as a result, they might be experiencing adverse impacts on their health as a result of a sedentary lifestyle. And in this podcast, we want to give a general overview of some of the things that we consider to be important principles for trying to facilitate exercise while appreciating that we absolutely cannot cover all of the nuances. And that's particularly the case for you know, more severe and, and nuanced disabilities where people have very specific needs and they can't access a gym and even some of the adaptations we mentioned mightn't be appropriate. We completely appreciate all those limitations, but hopefully you can take something away from it. Yeah, we should probably say that we're, excuse me, we're coming at this more from our personal training experience or talking to a personal trainer rather than talking to like someone in the medical community or potentially even someone with a disability themselves you know we're talking more from the oh because in fact we actually do know quite a few trainers who train people with intellectual and physical or intellectual and or physical uh, disabilities they do them either as like group classes or they are part of you know, different, I don't know what you'd call them, societies or whatever that, you know, helps people with various disabilities and they help them integrate exercise into their life, right? So we're more so talking to those people, those those kind of trainers, if you will. However, hopefully in doing that, in, in helping those trainers to understand how to think about this stuff, it also actually helps the individuals themselves that, you know, potentially have disabilities or people who, are related or have friends that have disabilities and would like to help them get into exercise. Absolutely. And just in terms of that term disability as well, this is actually, it's it's used differently in the way that we use it kind of commonly in everyday life 
and in uh, medical research, for example, because sometimes what you'll see are terms like disability adjusted life years or the disability associated with a certain disease. And this might be something like low back pain or cardiovascular disease or respiratory disease. And you're kind of thinking, wait, that that's not what I understand to be disability. And this is the important uh, sort of distinction here is that disability can effectively come at someone at any point in life, that it could be the primary manifestation of um, a disease or a deficit that's present early on in life, or it could be secondary to a disease process that happens later on in life. So there's a really, really broad spectrum here. Um, and of course, as a result, the manifestations are, are going to differ quite a bit. But just make note of that because, you know, we're not necessarily focused on the disability that occurs secondary to you hurting your knee and having otherwise been healthy. You know, of course, that would be far too broad. So, yeah, but it is important to also, especially in the, well, it's also, I was going to say, especially in the realm of physical disability, it's also in the realm of intellectual disability yeah. or what might fall under the category of intellectual disability. Um, it's important to realize that like disability can happen to anyone at any stage, right? Like obviously you're talking about there a little bit more on the, you know, we'll say injury and pain related disability side. Like say, for example, you tore your hamstring. Like we could argue that, especially while your hamstring was torn, you were disabled. You could not use your body in the way that you used to use it. And now you're differently abled, if you will. Right. Um, now, obviously, that's healing up. There are still stuff, complications, et cetera, which your hamstring won't get into that. Um, but that's obviously different than the case of, for example, if you had been doing jujitsu and you got slammed on your neck or something and now you're a paraplegic, you know, like obviously there's gradations within this. But it is important to realize that you can become disabled at any stage of your life, both physical and intellectually. Now, obviously, there are also, you know, genetic or early life things that lead you or could potentially lead someone to being disabled. So there is a huge, huge variety here. And obviously, we're not going to get into the nuances of every single one of these. You know, that's not the goal of this podcast um, and realistically you should be talking to a healthcare provider for that or someone who is qualified and certified to deal with your specific situation we're trying to give you the kind of more broader kind of speak broader thought process with this stuff absolutely and just one final caveat it feels like we're adding a lot of caveats but they're they're very relevant is that um you know the the developmental considerations warrant um a much uh, more nuanced discussion that is also beyond the scope of this podcast, because when you're uh, looking at, for example, children's disability services, there's a lot of different, um, you know, uh, specialties like physiotherapy, occupational therapy, speech and language therapy, etc. All of these um, services are going to be involved in a person's care. And there's specific milestones that a child might need to hit, for example, like them being able to sit up independently or having head control and, you know, being able to walk, being able to cruise, all these different types of things. And they're far more specialized than just the discussion uh, that we're having today. So primarily what we're focused on are adults, really, um, although there will be there will be transferability to child and adolescent populations, but there are obviously reasons that you should be seeing a physiotherapist for the more specialist concerns that go beyond the purpose of this discussion. So with that said, where do we start? Well, I would think <clears throat> the first place to start is asking ourselves, and we've discussed it on previous podcasts, but again, we want to make sure that this is able to be viewed or listened to as a standalone. Why is exercise important for people with physical and intellectual disabilities? Like what benefit are they actually gaining from exercise? Yeah, so the first thing is uh, self-efficacy, which is incredibly important across a broad range of uh, disability <clears throat> because self-efficacy is effectively our sort of self-belief in our ability to do things and our ability to go out into the world and say, you know what, if I work at that, I think I can improve and I think I can begin to achieve things. I think I can be a, a valued member of society, let's say. That's all part of self-efficacy. And it starts from very small things and it can grow up to um, the bigger things then in life. So, for example, if let's say you grew up with um, cerebral palsy, for example, 
you grew up with cerebral palsy and all your life you were in a position where you know you you noticed your physical differences compared to the other people in school you weren't really in a position where you were where you were able to play let's say football or to partake in PE the same way other kids were and that's always been something that's on your mind and as a result you kind of came into adolescence into late adolescence and young adulthood and you're in a position now where your prior understanding of your physical ability has always been in the context of being behind other people and not being someone who has much physical self-efficacy in terms of your ability. So for you, you're starting from a position where maybe you don't have a great, you're not in a great psychological state, you know, approaching exercise. You're, you're struggling to, you know, view yourself as being the person that goes to the gym regularly. You can't picture yourself doing a squat. You can't picture yourself doing a bench press. You haven't maybe had those examples in your life. But so for you, it might be as simple as when you begin going to the gym and suddenly you're doing a bodyweight squat, then you're doing a bit of a goblet squat, whatever movement it happens to be, suddenly for the first time in your life, you're seeing yourself, you know, making steps forward. You know, you might remember taking your first steps as a child, but this is what it feels like to you that suddenly you're doing something for yourself in terms of your, your physical ability. You're comparing yourself to what you were doing the week prior. And now you've got this realization that, hey, look, when I actually train my body, it can get stronger. It can get more muscular. It can get fitter. I can improve my range of motion. And yes, the deficits will be there. You know, I might have high tone in my calves. I might, you know, have restrictions in range of motion and weakness in certain muscles. But look, I can actually improve. And that's something that's incredibly powerful, you know, both uh, physically and intellectually. Because when you begin to learn that there's, when you follow a, a plan, any plan in life, and you can improve, it's incredibly empowering. So that's the first thing is self-efficacy um, in a very, very broad sense. It also obviously spans to uh, intellectual disability. And we're creating a false dichotomy here because we kind of need to for the purpose of discussion between physical and intellectual disability. But let's say, you know, you're someone with an intellectual disability and uh, maybe it's just a very mild intellectual disability. And you went to a mainstream school, let's say you were in a mainstream school and throughout your schooling experience, maybe you had a special needs assistant. You always kind of had this idea that you weren't doing the things that all the other students were doing. You know, you weren't sitting maybe the uh, regular junior cert or you really struggled when you were doing it or you're leaving cert as you came to the, the end of secondary school. You sat, you sat the leaving cert applied or maybe you didn't sit it at all. There was always this idea that you were behind other students, okay? And when everyone else was talking about going off to college, you were maybe left out of that discussion a little bit, you know? That experience varies, but it happens to some people. And now suddenly, you begin exercising, you start to feel good about yourself, you see, again, oh, look, I'm doing this thing, I'm improving, it's actually making me feel better each day, and I'm partaking in these activities, let's say in the gym or as part of a club, just like all these other people, and we're all doing the same thing and we're all improving. So that's really powerful, regardless of where you are on that disability spectrum. So that's kind of the first point here that I think is, is really powerful. Yeah. And we see, <clears throat> sorry, a bit of a, a tickle in my throat. Um, we see like microcosms of this in the quote unquote normal world where people will talk about, you know, for example, self-acceptance, body acceptance, right? And like you see that kind of really propagated online around, you know, uh, body fatness, for example, right? But just apply that same uh, thought process, those same things that people feel like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm overweight. So I just, I'm not supposed to be the person that's in the gym. I'm not a fit person. I shouldn't be engaging in these health habits. That's just not me. There's shame, guilt, all that kind of stuff. Now imagine you are someone with a physical disability, you know, like that is obviously magnified a huge amount. So we see the same microcosm in the quote unquote normal world, but it's, uh, magnified a huge amount when we're talking about physical disabilities and that same self-empowerment that you get from exercise you see again in the quote-unquote normal world where you see people who you know maybe they haven't they don't have the the best intellectual ability right they've never been the smart person they've never been the like oh yeah i get straight a's whatever right 
but then they start going to the gym and they start building up their confidence and they're going, whoa, actually I can work at something. I might not have the, the most like fantastic brain ability, but I can work at something and I can see myself getting better. And that builds up the self-confidence that builds up uh, a lot of like self-efficacy. And this is also why you see a lot of people become like evangelists and uh, proselytizing, uh, like exercise. And they're like, oh, like you should exercise. It's the best thing ever. Because usually for those individuals, that's the first thing that they really saw themselves being able to influence and having some sort of control over, right? And again, you see that a lot in people with physical disabilities. I know both of us have trained quite a few people with physical disabilities of varying uh, degrees. And you see that a lot. People, for example, that have... MS, right? I know I had a client before with MS and they weren't able to do stuff in a kind of more unilateral. They couldn't do stuff that required a lot of balance, you know? And we got them to a stage where they were able to do just dumbbell lunges, right? And that was so empowering for them because they were like, wow, actually, I can't, I'm actually able to do this stuff, you know? And you might go to the gym and you might be like, right, I did dumbbell lunges on my first day in the gym. It was, it's no big deal, you know? But for someone who has never been able to do that, someone that had, well, they, maybe potentially wear with MS previously able to do it. But for someone that has felt that they are not able to do that anymore, that's just off limits for them. They're never going to get to that stage to then be able to do it. Like that is so empowering. That's so like, there's not even a word for it. There's just a lot of joy around that, you know? So that self-efficacy thing, the reason we started with that was because that's probably realistically one of the biggest benefits of exercise in people that have physical or intellectual or and or intellectual disabilities. It builds a huge amount of self-efficacy, right? And we can get caught in the weeds of thinking about the mechanistic stuff going like, oh, it's going to improve your health and it's going to reduce comorbidities, et cetera, et cetera. But realistically, that self-efficacy thing is huge. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And you touched there on, on comorbidities. And this is something that's actually forgotten in the cases of a lot of different diseases that maybe aren't primary, like cardiometabolic disease. You know, you don't think of it as being a heart disease or diabetes or something like that, but the improvement in health and the improvement in comorbidities that occurs in response to exercise is very, very powerful for a lot of different diseases that you might put into the category of um, disability. A couple of examples that would come to mind would be um, people with Down syndrome, for example, um, very often have a propensity towards uh, diab- or obesity slash uh, diabetes as a result of obesity, but also um, cardiovascular disease and, and other complications, Alzheimer's and things like that. But so for that population who have that elevated risk already, exercise is going to be impre- incredibly powerful in terms of risk reduction. And we'll get back to that later on. But another one that maybe mightn't be so obvious would be something like, um, let's say a psychological disability, you could say, would, which would be schizophrenia. So schizophrenia, the treatment uh, or some of the drugs, at least for schizophrenia, have terrible cardiometabolic um, side effects in terms of uh, increasing obesity, uh, insulin resistance, diabetes, and all of the cardiometabolic sequelae thereof. And this is actually what often shortens the lifespan quite considerably of people with schizophrenia. So again, what we're talking about here is exercise being a potent sort of adjunct or adjuvant therapy, you might say, for a person with schizophrenia, because it's drastically reducing the side effects of uh, their other treatment and allowing them to have better health as a result. So you can view it as having very general health benefits in that there's basically, there's little to, there are little to no conditions in which someone um, wouldn't benefit from exercise. You know, most people are going to in general, and we say that all the time. Um, but also then there's Talk about that stuff on previous podcasts. Yeah. So we're not gonna yeah, I'm not going through all the health benefits of exercise. <laughs> um, but then you've got the the specific uh, reduction in certain risk factors that are associated um with certain disabilities. So um really, really important uh, to consider those as well. Yeah, 100%. So we're basically saying exercise is important, builds self-efficacy, improves health, shotgun approach improves health. And then also more specifically to people with physical and intellectual disabilities, we're really looking at exercise as an adjunct to whatever other therapies they're on as a way to manage the comorbidities that might be associated with you know, uh, sedentarism or sedentarism, however you say that word, um, that that individual might have to be in like for example if you are in a wheelchair you basically are forced to be sedentary you know it's like it's not your choice but 
what else are you going to do? So you have to effectively work more than someone else. Cause you know, when we say a sedentary lifestyle, you know, we're talking about people that are like, Oh yeah. Like I get like a thousand, maybe 2000 steps per day. Like if you're in a wheelchair, you're not getting any steps per day, <laughs> you know? And obviously you have to wheel yourself around, but a lot of the times, and it's really unfortunate with a lot of physical uh, disabilities, a lot of people become more housebound, you know? And that is obviously a lot to do with self-efficacy, a lot to do with the way society is structured. Like we don't, like if you, like say you are in wheelchairs, I know a few individuals that are in wheelchairs, like they don't want to be a burden. They don't want to feel like, oh, like I have to make, like the world has to make special dispensations for me. So rather than asking the world to change, they just withdraw and don't engage with the world, you know, like they don't want to have to, oh, well, actually there's no ramp here, you know? So they're like, they don't want to have to ask for that. And they definitely don't want someone to have to like carry them up the stairs to go somewhere. Like they want the world to be open to them, but they don't want to have to be at this position to like most individuals, they don't want to stand out. You know, you already feel like you stand out if you're in a wheelchair. So you don't want to stand out even further by being that person that's complaining, you know? So Unfortunately, a lot of people with physical disabilities and intellectual disabilities are confined to the home or potentially a few different areas that are you know, safe for them. You know, and that's not the case for all physical disabilities, you know, and obviously not the case for all individuals with specific physical disabilities, but it is very often the case. So there's also this added benefit of exercise of getting people out of the house generally speaking, um, which obviously comes along with a lot of barriers, which we'll get into. Um, but it is one of those added benefits. And especially when we talk about, you know, sports like the disabled sports of various kinds, it also brings in this social element to all of this, you know? Absolutely. Um, so with that said, let's make a, a brief transition to discussing um, physical disability as a broad category to start with, because we're slotting a few things in here that maybe you mightn't typically think of as physical disability, but it's still, um, it's it's just easier for this discussion at least. So one of those would be like lack of a vital sense, for example. So if you're blind or if you're deaf, I have a client at the moment who's deaf, and that is considered, you know, to be a, a disability, of course. And on that as well, like we always try to do stuff like, you know, adding text to speech to text um, yeah. on our posts and stuff like that. But obviously that's not possible in every case, or oftentimes we just forget, you know, and that also is just a barrier to individuals getting information that they need or would benefit from. And again, some of these things are easy fixes. Like we could just have a thing where it's like, okay, you have to make sure that everything is accessible. That is one thing that I'm trying to do with the nutrition course that we have. I'm at the moment, I'm making it more accessible for different individuals. Um, but anyway, that's an aside. Um, but that is another barrier that you often don't think about. Like, I always think that I'm like, if I, like, I really enjoy reading and I also really enjoy like listening to podcasts and stuff. And I'm like, what would I actually do if all of a sudden my eyesight just failed or my hearing just failed? I'm like, a lot of the stuff that I take for granted would just become off limits to me, you know? Yeah. And I think people forget that. And, and I think what's forgotten even more often are, you know, the small barriers to exercise. Like what I, what I, the way I analogize this to people is think of, think of your own kind of resistance to going to the gym. You know, people might think, um, right, I'm going to go to the gym. And then they say, oh, but I don't want to walk to the gym because it's raining outside right? Um, okay, I can drive. But what if you can't drive? Like, what if a disability genuinely stops you from being able to drive? And it's like, oh, you get a lift from someone. Okay, they're not at home. Okay, you get the bus. The bus is 15 minutes down the road. You know, you, that's and it's raining, you can't get there. There's all these little things that begin to add up that you just don't forget about, or that you just don't consider if you're not thinking about the, the small kind of minute limitations in your everyday life. It's the same as someone that might be in a wheelchair, you might say, oh, well, gyms are so accessible these days, you know, they can easily go into any gym. Go go into a gym and look at the space that's between different machines, particularly in a busy gym. Look at the way the gym is set up. Look at the amount of dumbbells that are left over on the floor. And you'll begin to notice all of the very small little barriers for someone being able to go into the gym and partake uh, appropriately. Um, not to mention the fact that, you know, if you're going to the gym, um, and you're in a wheelchair again you might need to have a specific car that you need you need in order to get to the gym and then afterwards you know you might need to 
go to work or you might have other commitments and you mightn't be able to shower at the gym like someone else might be able to to do. So there's all these things that just add up that make it um, so that there's many, many barriers in the way. And that's obviously something for us as trainers and gym owners to think about in terms of making facilities more accessible if people are trying to come in. But it's also just important to kind of have empathy as to why people don't exercise. Because I think sometimes you think we get exposed to a lot of this online, like some people will call it, uh, it sounds awful because it, 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 I'll say it anyway, disability porn online. And I don't mean that kind of porn, but this sort of motivation that you see in all the motivational videos, you'll see someone with cerebral palsy deadlifting, or you'll see someone with a wheelchair in a wheelchair who's like, they're in the gym and they're doing chin-ups and they're super inspired and they're fired up. But I think sometimes you run the risk of, you know, seeing those videos and saying, there's no reason why anyone can't exercise. Like, why aren't other people in wheelchairs? Like, why aren't they in the gym? You don't appreciate all of the different things that go into that. You know, someone could be in a wheelchair and, you know, one person is, they have the limitations of um, not having functional legs, but someone else might have autonomic dysfunction where they have severe nerve pain. They might have pressure ulcers. They might have, you know, they might be heavier and require lots of needs in terms of washing and things like that after. So there's so many things that go under the hood here that aren't obvious, that are absolutely barriers. So on that right, note- We're getting a bit sidetracked. Let's yeah, get back to different categories yeah, of yeah, physical yeah. disabilities. Yeah, <laughs> so the mild, mild physical disabilities obviously fit into this category, which might be things like a mild scoliosis, you know, or a mild um, leg length discrepancy, for example. These are the sort of mild things that we might discuss when we're having a general- injury conversation we have these variations between people they're relatively mild and they're not likely to have severe impacts but they're still something that might require um, adaptations to exercise for obviously scoliosis can be a lot more severe and might impact someone's respiratory function and then that might push them into the major physical activity or major physical disability category the major physical dis disabilities obviously as we discussed paraplegia quadriplegia if you're you know have the lack of fully functional limbs might be missing limbs, potentially um, missing digits, fingers, toes, etc. after um, amputation or something like that, or congenital malformations, and maybe severe cerebral palsy, lots of different physical disabilities that fit into um, that more major category. And then the final, I guess, physical category, and there are more, would be something like um, seizures, for example. So if someone has epilepsy, and they know they're at consistent risk of having seizures, that again is a consideration uh, for exercise. Because for example, if they get seizures in response to maybe when they're sweating a lot or something like that, and they're standing up in the gym and there's weights on the floor, like clearly that's something that would be a risk for that individual. So all these things end up being um, things to consider when it comes to exercise. Yeah. So we basically have these very, very broad categories. It's not like these are just perfect buckets and they delineate everything. We have some sort of lack of a vital sense. So again, it could be blindness, some sort of mild physical disability. Again, we'll just use the case of a mild scoliosis. Again, I know I have, I have a few clients that have had scoliosis. I have a few clients that currently have scoliosis um, or I currently have a few clients that have scoliosis. <laughs> um, so it could be something like that, but it could also be just something like you said, like a leg length discrepancy or whatever, right? And then we've got more major physical disabilities and that could be something like a major form of scoliosis or something. But generally we see people talking about some sort of, you know, spinal cord injury, some sort of like lack of limbs, something that's a major barrier to physical activity, right? And then again, we have something like intermittent seizures of whatever kind, epilepsy, for example. And obviously, like people don't generally think of, you know, seizures as a physical disability. And we could obviously put that in the category of like a brain related phenomena, but it actually makes more sense to discuss it in the physical disability section, because a lot of the adaptations you would make for someone with a physical disability they're kind of the same considerations you would have for someone with seizures you know but uh rather than go through this in a more well maybe we'll just go through it quickly in a more general sense and then we'll use a more specific kind of case study to really illustrate this when we're thinking about how do we train someone or how do we help someone train that has a physical disability obviously the first thing is doing some sort of needs analysis, doing some sort of, you know, functional analysis and sitting down and thinking through what can they actually do and 
what do you need to modify either in the gym environment or the training environment? It could be at home, whatever. Um, what do you need to do to make it more likely that you can actually get a good quality or high quality training session for this individual? I know we've talked about this before in various other places, but if we are doing stuff like training at home, like obviously if you're training someone that has a physical disability, a lot of this stuff is already going to be taken care of. Like they're not going to have like steps in the way or barriers to access or whatever. Well, you would hope if it's their home, they don't have <laughs> those different kind of things. So it's kind of taken care of, but if we're in the gym setting, like you're going to have to think about those kind of things. Like if you have someone that's coming in and they're like, I'm in a wheelchair, I want to exercise, like starting at getting into the gym, getting to the gym, the surrounding area, like are there ways for them to do that, right? Obviously all that stuff is kind of outside the scope of what we're going to discuss, but I do want to just put that in there to make sure that people are aware of that stuff. So the kind of accessibility stuff. After that, again, we're doing this kind of needs analysis, this functional analysis going, what are we doing? What can we do? What can't we do? What are potentially some of the you know, comorbidities that we're really going to focus on with this individual? So we're coming up with a, a broader plan of action. But then when we're actually training them, we're, like what's the first step? Are we just going, all right, we're just going to have you on this like three day per week bodybuilding program. Like where, where do we start with this stuff? Yeah, I think the first thing is to um, understand, like, I guess, a capability analysis in that what can you actually do right now? You know, and, and that might seem like a very obvious question, but there's actually so many things that even in the presence of more major disabilities that you could still potentially do as exercise options. For example, if someone is um, paralyzed from the waist down, let's say, and they're wheelchair bound, they can use their upper body. Obviously, there are going to be limitations to being able to use certain machines in the gym. But if you have as, as little as a few bands and a cable stack, you can train every major muscle group in the upper body. You know, it might be difficult, but if there's something that you could do there. So if you've never trained before, you're going to get uh, benefits from doing very little. So it might be as simple as you're attaching a band to the stairs at home. And you're doing some rows and then you turn around the other way and you do presses with the band and then you do presses overhead. You do some curls with the band um, all these different exercise variations that we see in the gym every day. We can adapt these very simply with just the use of a band or a cable or using one arm at a time, etc. So there are these very simple modifications that you can make that are probably pretty intuitive once you have somewhere to set it up. And remember that when you're in this position. Doing something is always better than doing nothing. So don't worry so much about it being perfect. And that's the the problem that people run into here. Even when people have very um, mild disabilities, like let's say someone with uh, scoliosis, they might stress so much about how do I achieve perfect muscular balance? You know, if, if I've got my spine and it's not, you know, shaped uh, in a straight way, my muscles are going to be imbalanced. My right lat's going to be bigger than my left. My shoulders are going to be imbalanced, etc. You're so focused on trying to like force yourself into this mold of normal that you're not actually treating yourself as the individual that you are. And it's perfectly fine for muscles to be um, imbalanced. It's perfectly fine for um, you to have a slightly different physical structure uh, than someone else, particularly in the presence of disability. So don't worry so much about the optimal program. Worry about doing something consistently and then optimize gradually over time. Something that can help here quite a bit is getting a personal trainer or someone to assist you in the gym. So maybe it's that you have a physical disability that limits your balance, um, you know, picking up weights and carrying them across the gym. That might be the issue. It might be that you're wheelchair bound, whatever it happens to be, there might be some sort of limitation that if you had a personal trainer or if you had a friend with you in the gym that you trust, they could assist you. And I appreciate that that's not accessible to everyone. And what you can do if, you know, you're in this position, and again, this totally varies by location and, and where you live, et cetera. But if you reach out to maybe support groups in the area or exercise classes that are in the area for um, people in your position, you'll often find people who have maybe dealt with the issues that you have, and you can try to resolve them that way. So that's something that's really important to do, both during the sessions in terms of having someone to support you, but also for you know, coming up with ideas, brainstorming, etc. You know, the, the online is so useful for this now because you can just look up YouTube videos of, you know, how to exercise if you have 
cerebral palsy, how to exercise if you're in a wheelchair. And you'll see people come up with very creative ideas as to how you can set up a program. You also need to have, I think, uh, a bit of a flexible mindset. You can't be on this like super rigid program that's set up for someone that just isn't you. You know, if you're wheelchair bound, let's say, um, and you have specific machines that you can use in the gym and others that you're not able to use because they're not accessible, and you go in on a Monday evening and suddenly all the machines for chest are taken, um, you might need to modify your program a bit. Say, okay, I'm going to do this exercise first because that's free and not this one. That's kind of advice that we share to lots of our clients in general, but it just becomes even more important when there's other barriers uh, in the way. Um, so you have to have that flexible mindset and you also have to appreciate that you know some days might just be worse than others. You mightn't continue progressing at the same rate or you might hit a wall where you've kind of topped out the exercise variation that you've uh, been doing and you're not sure what to do next. So it's perfectly fine to run into those barriers and then troubleshoot from there. So you have to stay flexible. Then of course you have to be adaptive and this is kind of the core discussion really when it comes to physical disability and exercise there are many different adaptations that you can make to exercises to make them uh, accessible for you so for example let's say i didn't have hands okay i have no hands and i just have uh, below the elbow i have a little bit of forearm and that's it can i train my upper body yes i can how would i do it i would use things like cuffs for example um there's lots of different variations of cuffs, but uh, the ones that are most uh, accessible in a gym would be the ones that people put around their ankle typically. So if you place them on the uh, upper arm, at the elbow there, you can do row variations, you can do lateral raise variations, you can do chest press and shoulder press variations. You can effectively train every muscle in the upper body by attaching weights to those areas. So there's many different ways that you can adapt exercises. There are also things like... Uh, hooks and specific disability specific um, modifications that you can get in order to perform exercises um, prosthetics etc so there are also things that can feature here um, of course there you also might be need, need to be adaptive in other ways for example if you're doing um, a, a lunge let's say and you've got bodyweight lunges that you want to be able to do for you, if you have, let's say, a lower body disability that is limiting your balance, you might want to start by doing a supported lunge where you're holding on to both sides of a rack and doing a lunge that way. So your balance doesn't become the limiting factor. So there are many ex different examples that we could work through there, but that's just illustrating some of those key, key concepts. Yeah. And some of the stuff is not necessarily intuitive with this stuff. Like, well, you would hope it would be fairly intuitive to someone who knows about exercise, but someone who doesn't necessarily know a lot about exercise. Like if you're a personal trainer, a lot of this stuff will be intuitive. You'll kind of go, oh, well, this is the function of the lat. So I can get that trained with all these different movements. And this is how I would modify it. Like, say, for example, you want to do some sort of pull down, but the individual has, I don't know, diadactyly or whatever, like they have two fingers or something. You're like, okay, well, it's nothing really changes. I'm just going to get them some sort of hook implement it's all good, right? But then you might have someone that has no limb below the elbow and you're thinking, well, how do I train this individual? I still want to get some lat movement. Then, like you said, cuffs can be a good thing. You know, you're just attaching it to the upper arm and you're still going through the movement. You just obviously aren't holding on to the implement. That's not necessarily intuitive to someone who yeah. doesn't know a lot about exercise because they look at that and go, oh, well, I have to do this exercise the way everyone else does this exercise. They're not thinking about how the muscles move or the general overall function or you know movement pattern. They're thinking, oh, I must follow this choreography. And that's not just people with disabilities. That's just the general public. Most people think, oh, I have to squat. I have to do X exercise. I have to do XXX or XX, I can't even speak, XYZ exercises, exactly how they're done over here. I have to do them like that, or I'm not going to get the benefit from them rather than understanding the underlying or the fundamental principles that are actually guiding that exercise selection or execution, right? So a lot of this stuff is not necessarily intuitive but a lot of this stuff is also not necessarily intuitive for personal trainers about how you would help that individual to the highest degree for example i i didn't personally train them but i know they were training in the gym that i, I was training in and they had like no lower limb function right their their legs were still there but they were like they had a spinal cord injury right and they were really strong they could you know do all the stuff 
but they had to make specific changes, which wouldn't necessarily be intuitive for a personal trainer. For example, this individual used to just like wrap their legs together when they were doing chin-ups, right? Because when, if they didn't do that, their legs would like sway all over the place. And because they had absolutely no function in their legs or no control over their legs. So that made the exercise a lot harder for them because there's this huge balance component then and their legs are like flailing, flailing all over the place, right? So they just take their legs together, do the exercises, no problem, right? And that's not necessarily intuitive to a personal trainer, although that is something that's very intuitive to someone that has no leg function right? or no lower limb function or no lower leg function or whatever, right? Um, so there's intuition that goes both ways here. A lot of stuff that personal trainers will just intuitively be able to help you with, but if you are someone with a physical disability, don't discount your own intuition in terms of how you could potentially modify that exercise to make it better for you. Absolutely. And then there are other options that maybe go beyond the typical confines of the gym. So for example, reduced load bearing activities like swimming uh, can be something that's uh, very useful for certain people, particularly if, uh, you know, standing and walking around is their primary limitation. You know, that even goes for people like myself, let's say, who rupture the hamstrings. You know, if you're in that position, maybe you've had, you might have had an amputation of the lower limb, whatever injury you happen to have. Uh, reduced load bearing activities can be a great way to keep up your cardio and keep active in the absence of being able to use your lower limbs properly. Obviously, your legs are important for swimming, but you can still make do. There are also obviously disabled sports and different groups that you can partake in. Um, again, they vary by region, but there's almost always going to be something in your area, uh, depending on the type of disability that you have. You know, you'll have um, to soccer teams with people with Down syndrome. You'll have, um, you know, even amputee soccer you see is quite popular these days. Also, you can see like blind soccer. They have a, yeah. a L in the thing, in, in the ball. Yeah, wheelchair basketball, etc. There's loads of loads of different options of those types of sports these days. And um, also, just on, as an aside, like we both do jujitsu, and there's lots, lots of jujitsu athletes who are missing limbs or potentially have other physical disabilities. I know there's a great charity in the UK, Reorg. They they do great work with people that are you know physically disabled. A lot of veterans and stuff, which is a huge population. Obviously, you know if you step on an IUD or something like you lose your legs, like that's not great for your physical capabilities. Even if you used to be someone who was at the peak of their fitness, their strength, etc. And now obviously there's all other psychological stuff that go along with that. That I would I would argue, and I also think you would argue that physical activity would help with a lot of that psychological stuff. And um, so there are charities and different organizations that can help with this. Um, and I actually think more so than just the gym work, like uh, disability or whatever you want to categorize this as sports, like disability sports, Special Olympics, different things like that. I actually think they're almost more beneficial than just going to the gym. However, I would also argue that any activity is better than no activity. Yes, absolutely. So with all of that said about physical disability, what I'd like to give you is just a bit of a, a case example to try to discuss some, some of these principles. So let's consider someone who has had a spinal cord injury and they've got some upper limb function now. So their arms, they've got function, they can elevate them a little bit, but but not they're not at their at their best. They're recovering some upper limb function, but lower limb function is entirely absent. And as a result, they're wheelchair bound. So for this individual, think to yourself, how might they begin to exercise? What are some of the things we'd like them to do? If we want them to be able to do cardiovascular and resistance training, how are we going to go about that? So let's start by considering cardiovascular exercise, because that's something that's obviously very difficult because people often think, oh, well, cardio is, uh, you know, running on the treadmill or cycling. How, how are we going to make this work? So there are still ways to make it work. Um, two examples that come to mind immediately would be, for example, the ski erg that is that are available in most gyms these days, um, or in a lot of gyms at least. If you can, uh, if you have the strength to grip or you have grip attachments for someone with a spinal cord injury, the resistance can be set low, and they're going to be able to do you know quite a few reps. All you need to be able to do is pull down, and then the the machine is going to pull the hands back up. 
And doing that over and over and over again is going to provide a cardiovascular stimulus because fundamentally what we're trying to do is get the heart rate up and be able to do that consistently. So that would be one option for that individual. You also have- Just on that, like you should be thinking, especially if you are a personal trainer or something, like you want to be thinking, okay, well, I might have a solution in terms of the cardiovascular equipment availability, but- this person's in a wheelchair, how are we going to stabilize the wheelchair to keep them in that position? Because they're not able to do that just with their abs or their weight, you know, so you might have to come up with other things. Now on something like a ski erg, it's not necessarily going to pull them out of position a huge amount. And obviously if they have their brakes on, on the wheelchair, like they're not going to get hugely out of position, but these are things that you need to be considering. And it might be a case that you're just going to have to weigh down the wheelchair a little bit more through whatever, obviously, Again, talk to the person with the disability, how they would like to do that. Um, like some people I know, they put like a weight plate on their on their legs. For some individuals, that's not ideal. Um, but stuff like that, you need to be thinking through. Absolutely. And, and then the same thing goes for probably one of the other major categories of upper body cardio, which would be um, the they're they're called different things, but that the handheld ergometer, basically, it's kind of like your um, it's like the pedals of a bike, but you're using only your hands. They're called hit tubes in some gyms, but basically it's like pedaling with your hands. That again is another option. Grip can obviously be a limiting factor. If someone has a spinal cord injury, let's say they don't have full grip strength, they might be able to hold on to it. But again, that's where hooks or grip attachments, uh, can come in, uh, useful here. And generally those machines, um, are often developed with that in mind that people with disabilities will be using them. So, um, either, the seat can be removed and the wheelchair can go in um, or the person might be able to sit up in the seat depending on the type of machine that it is. But yeah. that is something that again can be useful. Yeah, the only thing is there's very few of them around. Like you see them oftentimes yeah. very specialized gyms. I know like I used to work in UCD, which is a major university in Ireland. Like when we had one there, but it was like one of the only ones in Dublin. Like for example, Conor McGregor actually came in specifically just to use that when I think it was his hamstring was it that he tore i can't remember but he had an injury like years ago um and couldn't do any lower body training still wanted to get his cardio in so used to use that you know so they're not as accessible as you would ideally like um but they are actually a phenomenal exercise or tool if you can't use your legs absolutely and i think a lot of like um leisure centers will have them because they're often like public amenities that are you know designated to be accessible however private gyms and stuff very rarely would you see that um but the ski ergs are becoming more and more frequently seen which is kind of a nice alternative and of course there are other things that you could come up with here in terms of using battle ropes or a modified roar and other variations as well but just think of the principle there rather than the specific machine just remember that we're trying to get the heart rate up and we're trying to do it consistently we don't have to do that in a conventional way we just have to find a way that we can have those repetitions and repetitions and repetitions in order to get the cardiovascular benefit and that principle then obviously carries over then to resistance training as well because we ask ourselves what are we trying to do when we're trying to build strength or build muscle we're trying to apply resistance against the movement of a joint so that it trains the muscles that move that joint. And if I am going to the gym today, let's say, and I'm training chest, I'm going to lie down on the bench press and I'll do some reps there. Then I might go over to the chest press machine and I'll do some reps there. If someone has a spinal cord injury, they may actually be able to do a lot of the same exercises. For example, if they have someone to assist them in getting on the bench, there isn't really much of a reason why they wouldn't be able to do a bench press type movement. Of course, it depends on their mobility. It depends on many factors, but that's still something that may be accessible. It might just be that you need a partner in that case. Similarly, that, like you see a lot of like the Paralympics, you see yeah. a lot of bench pressers. Like that's a sport that a lot of people with spinal cord injuries do and um, that have prevented like, you know, whatever the development or the ability to use their legs. <clears throat> and it's a sport. You can actually see it performed and obviously to varying degrees um like it depends on the exact nature of the injury etc but it's not like you can't do any of the same exercises that everyone else is doing 
you just might need to modify those exercises slightly. For example, in that case as well, like you often see those benches that are for the Paralympics, like they're actually specific benches. They're a little bit wider and oftentimes they'll have like straps so you can strap down the legs and stuff like that, which again is not necessarily intuitive if you are a personal trainer, but can actually really help. Uh, like you might not think for your, your, your client that has, you know, is in a wheelchair, you're not going to go, oh, well, okay, hop onto the bench there and then I'm going to strap down your legs. But <laughs> That might actually be something that is really helpful for them because they don't have to worry about trying to stabilize the lower limbs because they can't. Um, so they're like, okay, I don't have to worry about that. They're in place. They're not, not going to fall all over the place, you know? Absolutely. And, and again, that's something that's important too, is that you can have these little pieces of equipment that make this easier. For example, you can buy um, add-on seat belts you know some machines will have them some machines kind of have this in mind that if so if a wheelchair user is using it they might want to strap themselves in um but you can also just buy additional seat belts and add them to pretty much any machine and that goes for the bench press and it goes for any exercise really and it also is important to say that what you noted was that you can do these normal exercises and that's important because i don't want to create this caricature of disability exercise either where you just have to have all these different attachments and you're attached to a cable machine. And it's, it's just, it, it sounds, that sounds inaccessible because it sounds so complex, but you know, the bench, bench press, row variations, pull down variations, lateral raise variations, all these things can still be done. Once you have upper limb function, there might just need to be slight modifications. Again, you might need assistance getting into the lat pull down, or you might perform it from the chair. You might need assistance getting the weights, but you can then do the dumbbell lateral raises or dumbbell presses from uh, the chair that you're already in so there doesn't have to be drastic changes you just have to be a little bit flexible in terms of the exercises that you are going to use but and just just on that for sure there are definitely you know pieces of equipment that make this so much easier for example like that cybex bravo machine you know with the the chest pad or back pad or whatever whatever pad it is you can adjust that so you can create a huge amount of stability in different movements and because it's a cable machine you can basically you like you're literally confined only by your physical ability and your imagination like you can train pretty much any function with a good cable machine, which that Cybex Bravo machine is really quite good. And um, so if you had something like that, obviously it's going to make the process a lot easier because you can do something like a row. You can have the chest support on your chest. You can do your row, like you can modify it a huge amount, but obviously not everyone has access to equipment like that. So again, it comes back to what we were saying earlier. You need to have this kind of more flexible mindset. You know, someone might be using the machine that you often use or that you want to use so you're gonna to have to have a different option or you're gonna to have to have this more adaptive mindset or approach to training where you go okay what can i do how can i modify different exercises to train what i want to train and then just get after it absolutely and i think that's kind of most of what i wanted to cover there in terms of that case study because like again we could go through every single limitation that you could have but the primary principles we want you to take away are that you can apply resistance and you can get a cardio stimulus in the absence of doing conventional training. You just have to be creative. And as a trainer, you know, I think that's something we always impress on people is that it's just so important to get down to the fundamental level of what are we trying to achieve with exercise? What are the muscles? What's the physiology? What are the basic mechanics? And from there, whether it's a barbell, a cable, a band, whatever it happens to be, you can get a training stimulus. Might be more difficult for some people, but there's almost, almost always a way. 100%. So I think that, you know, well, not, I was going to say adequately covers physical uh, disabilities. Obviously it does not adequately cover it, but it should give you at least a, a thought process with this stuff. So I actually think the physical disability stuff, not to like belittle people's <laughs> lived experience, I actually think that's a little bit easier to deal with, right? you can come up with so many different variations and obviously you're more limited by the more larger scale of the disability. Like if you're uh, like completely paralyzed from the neck down, you know, it's like, obviously that's a, a much harder thing to get exercise in then uh, versus someone that's just like, okay, well, you know, I have a very, I have an inch difference in leg length discrepancy. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like, obviously there are gradations within this, but maybe it's my perspective because I know a lot about exercise. I'm like, okay, I can come up with some sort of plan of action for physical disability. 
intellectual disability, however, and we'll maybe categorize some different forms. Well, there's only really two uh, of intellectual disability. That's a lot harder. So talk to us about intellectual disability, Gary. Yeah. So intellectual disability, again, is going to span a very broad range. And the thing is, when we're talking about intellectual disabilities, we're often talking about them in the context that it's a mixed presentation in that there's intellectual and there's going to be physical and, of course, other features as well. So, for example, if someone has a certain type of syndrome, of which there are many, Down syndrome being the most common one people would be aware of as a, a chromosomal syndrome, there's also Turner syndrome, Hurler syndrome, many different types of syndromes that have mixed um, physical and intellectual components. Um, you've, you're dealing with m multiple different barriers here that make it a bit more complex. Because firstly, if someone is, um, if someone just has a, a primary physical disability, like we mentioned previously, they might have, they might be motivated to exercise already. They might have a solid understanding as to why exercise is of benefit. Whereas if someone ha is, has a pretty significant uh, intellectual uh, disability, they might be in a position where maybe they haven't really thought too much about why they should exercise. They're not thinking about exercise in terms of it being uh, preventative of future cardiovascular disease and those types of things. So the, the buy-in that you're getting here and the reason for exercise is something that makes it far more challenging as an entry point. And we might need to consider in these cases far more of the factors like you know, uh, making it fun, making it actually enjoyable, you know, making it a, a sporting activity or something that involves community. Because what we want here is that we're bringing someone into the exercise environment and they actually enjoy it enough to do it for life. Okay. And that's regardless of where they are on that spectrum of intellectual disability. And this has been uh, studied in many different populations. You know, we might, um, we might consider you know, uh, people on the autism spectrum, for example, to fit into this category, uh, people with syndromic uh, conditions like Down syndrome, etc. Generally, what we see is that exercise tends to improve psychological and behavioral correlates that might be of importance. So, for example, um, in um, ASD, autism, we generally see that um, behavioral regulation, emotional regulation, etc. is improved in response to exercise. So that's a nice thing to see but also that um, it's enjoyable for people with significant uh, intellectual disabilities. So there's studies on Down syndrome as well, because that's the question we want to ask is, is it actually viable? You know, or, or is this something that someone's going to have to be forced to do? Because that's not really the goal. And what you tend to see is that people with Down syndrome, when they're enrolled in resistance training and exercise studies, it's something that's actually enjoyable, that they feel the benefit of, which all comes back to what we touched on previously in relation to self-efficacy. And it's also really cool to see that the gains that are made um, in people with Down syndrome, for example, which is, you know, a mixed presentation once again, are pretty pronounced. You know, there's no reason why people uh, with Down syndrome or other conditions cannot go to the gym, benefit from it from a health perspective, but also make great progress in terms of their strength. And that's something that's really powerful. Yeah, 100%. So maybe we just go through the case of Down syndrome, because that's that's a good example here in terms of this kind of mixed presentation and um, what would you do like how would you start with this like what's the process here because obviously this is a, a harder thing to do and we're saying oh yeah just you know maybe sports for example make a community but if you're a coach for example that maybe you have a child that has down syndrome or potentially you know someone that has down syndrome and you want to get them exercising maybe you are just an individual that has down syndrome and you, you want to exercise because we often think of down syndrome or people with down syndrome uh, as oh like you're just so intellectually you know whatever you you're not going to be able to you know logically think this stuff through but that's not always the case with down syndrome like you can have very high functioning down syndrome yeah. um like I know they get treated in Ireland, uh, at least like second class citizens, but like this is something that, you know, I, we won't get into that. Um, Down syndrome, how do we how do we deal with it? Yeah, so the, the firstly, the treatment of Down syndrome, people with Down syndrome in Ireland has improved quite a bit over time. So we're not doing not doing too bad in that. At least it depends on the community that you're in. But in in uh, Killarney, where I'm from, you know, there's a there's a cafe 
that's uh, run exclusive. I'm not sure if it's still open, but it was run exclusively by, you know, people with Down syndrome. There's lots of businesses that will make an effort to make sure people are employed and things like that. So the the treatment and the integration to society has improved quite a bit over time. But of course, as you say, there's always, you know, uh, leaves much to be desired, we'll say. So in terms of Down syndrome, it is a mixed presentation and it's something that exists very much on a spectrum in that people can be very severely impaired and have a lot of um, behavioral issues and things like that. Um, or they might be, you know, pretty high functioning and might be well able to, you know, work a job. There might need to be some support, but they might be able to, to work a job, go to the gym on their own, those types of things. But the first thing I think of when I think of, um, someone with uh, an intellectual disability partaking in exercise is the question of safety. And I don't just mean safety in terms of the physical element, is this program safe, but how are we going to get an individual to go to the gym um, and to be able to uh, engage in the whole experience safely? For example, are you going to let them walk, walk to the gym on their own? Is there going to be someone to support them while they're there? Are they able to stay there on their own? Are they able to shower on their own after? Is it a safe environment overall? Um, and for some people, the answer is, oh, yes, of course. It's it's no problem at all. You know, I know there's people in um, my community at home in Killarney with Down syndrome that just go about their day like everyone else. But there are some people that are far more impaired. So, again, that's the first question is, how can we find an environment in which the person can partake safely? The second one, then, is considering some of those things that I mentioned in terms of fun and novelty and appreciating that the optimal program is not necessarily the, the entry point here. So if I'm a personal trainer, let's say, and I'm coaching someone with uh, Down syndrome who has an intellectual disability and they're not really that into exercise, I want to find out firstly, you know, what are they what what are they what are they interested in what do they do, find fun how can i make it relatable um how can i maybe gamify the exercise situation in some way and then go from there um it might be then that over time you're able to progress towards more conventional training they see themselves progressing they're getting into it they're saying oh look i'm lifting this and and they're really enjoying that process but first and foremost, try to find some uh, entry point that's actually fun and enjoyable. And I think very often, sorry yeah. to interrupt, like a real big part of this, I find at least, or at least I think at least, uh, is building in that community aspect of it. Like very often people with Down syndrome, they just want to make friends. They want to actually interact with the world. So finding activities that they can do and actually feel like they're part of the community. Like I actually think the the gym is quite good for this. Like I know a lot of people with Down syndrome that, well maybe not a lot but a few people with down syndrome that go to the gym and they find that they actually have a community people are willing to help them people are you know oh how are you getting on like they're nice to them and they can feel part of the community because again if you have an intellectual disability or a physical disability it can be very isolating and if we can overcome that with exercise involved as well i think that's a major win a hundred percent and i think that that community element is huge and like if I was a personal trainer and this was a population that I was trying to work with more often, maybe I saw there was a, a gap and that people weren't being, there was no gym that was really training people with Down syndrome. And I know there's people in the town, let's say what I would do is I'd try to, you know, get a few people in at once, you know, around the same age, for example, it might be uh, three people uh, with Down syndrome between the ages of 25 and 35. And we train them together in like a mini group setting because it's much easier to build that community and to build that kind of gamification element into it as well. Because that can be difficult as a trainer, even if you're just coaching anyone. Sometimes it's difficult for them to get the experience of being in a gym environment if you're doing private one-to-one -one PT sessions in a gym and there's no one else there. You know, it, it can seem very dead at times. So if we want to build that community element, mini group training is something that can actually be quite useful here. Um, so we want to make it fun. We want to inject some novelty in there um, as appropriate. Um, and then we also want to try to progress towards a more conventional exercise, I guess you could say. But the the important thing to note here, again, and I, I've said it already, is that like there's not, it's again, it, this is not such a special population that you shouldn't expect the things like progressive overload and volume and intensity and frequency to still apply. The exercise principles still apply. And there's no reason why a person can't be adding, you know, 10, 20, 30 kilos onto their bench in a year as they begin exercising, just like all of us did. There's no reason why they wouldn't be able to do that. So it is true that, you know, Down syndrome, because we're focused on this case, 
there are muscle specific effects. You know, there are effects on balance and postural control. There are effects on body composition with lower lean mass, bone mineral density, and more body fat. And there's functional disability. There's cardiovascular impairments. And overall, you're generally going to expect lower physical function. So this is true in the general course of Down syndrome, but that doesn't mean that that's a, a, a destiny as such. You know, it's, it's often the result of, yes, the disease in and of itself, but two, number two, the associated lifestyle that emerges from that. So by intervening here with exercise, we're going to be stopping or improving a lot of those factors, including improving balance and postural control, improving body comp, improving disability, and then improving cardiovascular function and overall physical function. And this is going to pay massive dividends in terms of the things that actually are at risk for someone with Down syndrome long-term with their uh, brain health, Alzheimer's disease risk. We know that, that that's reduced considerably by exercise, improved cardiovascular function, um, and everything else that we always talk about. So it all still applies regardless of a person's condition. We just need to maybe make it um, a little bit different to the way that we might uh, with, with our average client. 100%. Anyway, I think that covers pretty much everything that we want to cover obviously again this is a huge huge category and um, but we just wanted to give you more of a, a thought process with all of this stuff and um, so do you mind to say to kind of wrap it up anything that you feel like we didn't cover or that you potentially want to cover yeah i suppose the only thing i would say is, is just to remember those two things that i just mentioned there at the end number one if someone has a physical or intellectual disability that's associated with a certain condition there might be things that emerge from that or disease processes that emerge from that, that lead someone to having worse cardiovascular health, worse muscle function, worse physical function, etc. That's one trajectory. But the second contributor to those things that I just mentioned, those comorbidities, is the way that someone lives and the lifestyle that is encouraged or most likely in that condition. Okay. So for example, it's not the spinal cord it's not the spinal cord injury itself that leads to someone let's say becoming obese when they're in a wheelchair it's the spinal cord injury that leads to sedentary lifestyle that's more likely to be associated with low physical activity um psychological comorbidities etc and then subsequently the body fat is gained as a result so think of those principles in terms of how we talk about health for everyone else you know if i'm if I'm talking about exercise as it applies to me, I'm thinking about a reduction in cardiovascular risk. I'm thinking about an improvement in physical function. And even if I get any disease today that impacts those variables, I still have some control. And that's the same for someone with Down syndrome. It's the same for someone with a spinal cord injury. And I think the most important thing is to empower people through information as appropriate in terms of reminding them, hey, you, you can improve. There are lots of improvements to be made here. And then two, facilitating that through practical changes to exercise programming, nutrition programming, et cetera. 100%. Anyway, guys, um, I don't have anything else to say. Gary, do you want to wrap this up? Yeah, so that's everything, guys. Obviously, if anyone has any more questions following on from this, you'd be more than welcome to get in touch because like, this is such a big topic that you could do a series on it, going through all different um, types of disability and specific adaptations but if you have questions we're more than happy to to answer them or to try to get you an answer from someone who might be better qualified um so yeah hope you enjoyed the episode we do have coaching spaces available if you'd like to work with us so that's something to make a note of if you'd like to work with us coming towards the end of the year or heading into the new year 2023 um that's coming on us quickly now but uh, if you'd like to work with myself, Paddy, or any other member of the Triage Coaching team, you can apply in the description box below. You can also follow us on social media for more information um, for free. We put out a lot of content about training, nutrition, and health, and uh, you'll learn a lot if you're following us there at Triage Method. You can also subscribe to our newsletter for free. Triage Method newsletter goes out every week. Again, free content that's of great value for people. We also have nutrition certification. So if you're an exercise or wannabe nutrition professional um, and you'd like to get a certification under your belt, you'd like to get some solid education under your belt, you can do the triage nutrition certification. Of course, if you enjoy the podcast, we always appreciate when people share it and we appreciate when people leave a rating and review. So that's it from us, guys. We'll see you next week.